How's everyone doing this morning? Today we're speaking about something that we've been speaking about, which is talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And this morning we're going to be speaking about the fact that love is the cornerstone for all of the gifts. And it would seem like an easy prep, but I needed so many weeks to prep that the weather went bad, things were going sour, Mike jumped in an extra week. So I've had a lot of weeks to prep, and I really hope that I do it justice, because I was freaked out. So, but anyway, um, it's been so encouraging. Who here has felt encouraged by what's been shared over the last uh, several weeks in the gifts of the Spirit? Um, Andy, uh, who else has preached? Russ. I've been here for all of them. Uh, Mike, and uh, yes, and uh, Nathan, the shortest elder. Um, So it's been so cool to hear each of them preach and to share a different component of the gifts, whether it was stepping into uh, what God has for us, uh, the roadblocks, um, being able to be aware of the fact that the gifts are for all of us, and also uh, this morning that love is at the center of all the gifts. In my humble opinion, if we have been talking about the gifts as a vehicle, love is going to be the fuel. Mike also spoke the last couple of weeks about humility and something else that I thought was very helpful in that the gifts that God gives us, whether they're in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, outside of those gifts, the talents, the abilities, all the things that God has given us are spiritual gifts. And we as human beings have the choice in our free will to either use that gift to wield it for the gift giver or to wield it for ourselves. Every gift that God gives us is a double-edged sword. And we, as people and as Christians, have been called not to bring glory to ourselves, but actually to give glory to the giver of gifts. I should probably start my timer right about now. Mark Manfredi. And just before we jump into the text... There's this amazing uh, intro line that Paul tags on to the end of chapter 12, just before we get into what we're speaking about today, which is 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love, the one that's read at every funeral, every wedding, every special occasion, maybe out of context, who knows. But this morning, Paul says this, I want to show you the most excellent way. And this morning, we're speaking about the most excellent way. It's the word hodos, H-O-D-O-S. And it simply means a road or a journey, a mode or a means. Paul wanted to reveal something of the most excellent way, the most excellent mode, the most excellent means. If you want to read with me in 1 Corinthians 13, I'm just going to spit my gum out there. It says this in verse 1, If I speak in the tongue of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. And we know this part. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. 
But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even, I, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That was an entire chapter. Not very long. But before we go any further, I want us to put ourselves in the place of the Corinthians. I want us to place ourselves in Corinth. Just for a second. Why don't you close your eyes and just imagine yourself, just for a brief moment, in a city much like New York City. Your eyes are closed. You can hear the hustle and bustle of the city streets and the cars and the buses and things are moving quickly and you're walking down the road and you can hear extra, extra, read all of it. You can, newspapers are getting handed out. And did you hear the headline and something or other, Trump this, Trump that? And you're, you're going along and you can hear someone else um, kind of philosophizing about what's going on in the media, what's going on here and there. And there's this sort of buzz and excitement around what Corinthian life looked like. We're in the heart of a city that was a happening city. You can open your eyes now. <laughs> Some of you were flat out sleeping. And, <clears throat> and so the Corinthians were very much uh, a large, wealthy, powerful, old city. It was recognized as one of the oldest cities in Greece. And so you can imagine being in this context, you have access to everything. You want, to ha- you want to have nice, deep, intellectual conversations? You can have them. Do you want to have access to affluence? You can have it. Do you want power? You can have it. They had everything. Also known as the city that needed nothing. So why did Paul write to the Corinthians? Because in our series, we're talking about spiritual gifts. And this morning, we're talking about love as the cornerstone for spiritual gifts. But it would be easy for all of us to walk away from this series and think, oh, right, Corinthians, the book about spiritual gifts. Corinthians was not primarily about spiritual gifts. There was a few reasons why Corinthians was written, and it makes the whole love component very important. It goes something like this. Paul receives a letter from the Corinthians. Paul had planted this church where he spent about a year and a half of his life in Corinth establishing a church in a city that was known for its corruption. It was a pretty messy city, full of culture, full of excess, full of all of the human things that you can imagine. And so Paul, after a year and a half, had left this church to a few uh, good men, and uh, these leaders were in some serious trouble a few years after he had left because they were faced with all of these issues that seemed to be coming into the church that were from the culture that they lived in, but not necessarily from kingdom culture. And so what happened was the church was faced with moral issues. We know the story one man was... was being uh, intimate with his father's wife. Uh, people in the church were suing each other, like Christians were suing Christians and taking it to like pagan courts to try and figure it out. And the church was divided. Some people were standing up and saying, I'm with Paul. Someone else, I'm with Apollos. 
and someone else. We're with the Messiah group. And so what's going on is like people are dividing in the church and, and all of the things that the kingdom was designed for seem to be falling apart in this context. I would have not liked to be an elder in the Corinthian church. <laughs> if, any, if anyone in this room has functioned in leadership at any level, messy churches are a real pain in the butt. <laughs> Sorry. Um, every church. Okay, so. But this church was consumed by issues. And I would imagine that the leaders of this church were more than likely feeling like they were constantly putting out fires. Just running from one fire to the next. What is the answer to that? Just someone get that guy an answer. Would you stop doing that? Would you move on? Like these kind of things. And so they write this letter in a frantic moment to Paul. Help us. Help us. We have issues. We have these questions. And Paul, so beautifully in the book of Corinthians, begins the book by laying out line upon line, precept upon precept, what the answers to their various questions were. They had moral issues. They had marriage questions. They had worship questions. They had all these kind of things that they needed answers to. But what's most important to me is that while Paul answers those questions, he identifies something deeper, which is the root if there's anything I've noticed in my life is that if I don't deal with roots, I always deal with weeds. But isn't that the nature of the gospel, that the gospel cuts right to the heart? It bypasses the periphery, it bypasses the surface, and it gets right to the root, and it cuts man to the heart. See, part of the Corinthian church, of the culture of that day that had infiltrated them, is that they were so focused on themselves, they were so self-obsessed, that they had even allowed these things to trickle into the gifts. And we've been speaking a lot about the gifts of the Spirit. And what had happened in Corinth was this, is that they were, they were chasing the gifts that were the flashiest. They wanted the gifts that could make them look good. Not the gifts that were a gift to others, but a gift that was a gift to themselves. And while we can see their moral issues as obviously the culture had infiltrated the church, they also had cultural issues that had infiltrated the church and disguised themselves in spiritual clothing. I was thinking like, it's kind of like when you're working out. If you ever go to the gym, which I haven't in a while, just put that out there, and is, there's a thing in the, in the gym world called jail body. Has anyone ever heard of it? We all know about jail body. You over-exercise the muscles that are visible and under-exercise the ones that people don't see. So for guys, it's usually chest and arms, abs, and then like a nice baggy pair of jeans, right? You get what I'm... But that's what was going on in the Corinthian church. They are having a severe case of jail body. <laughs> Sorry. And Paul's response to this is amazing because he starts 1 Corinthians 13 by dealing with this very thing, but maybe not in the way that we think. He doesn't deal with it the way that culture would have. Look at the list that he lays out. Human eloquence, angelic ecstasy, speak God's word with power, reveal mysteries, mountain moving faith, give everything to the poor, burned at the stake. But if I have not love, I am nothing. What scares me about that is we, as Christians, can do a series of good things 
and yet we can operate completely outside of love. We can live unto death in a loveless, flashy lifestyle that appears spiritual. But Paul is telling us that without love, I am nothing, I say nothing, and I gain nothing. I love what the message says. It says, so no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. That tells me something. Love is greater than any spiritual gift. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, giving, martyrdom, it doesn't matter. Love is greater than any spiritual gift. Corinth was a place that celebrated independence and individualism. It was a place that needed nothing. And yet, in this moment, Paul creates a very polarizing tension. We read in chapter 12, and Nathan mentioned this, is that no matter how significant we are, it is only because of what we are a part of. Paul identifies the culture of the day, and instead of going after it the way that I would have maybe gone after it, he talks about how important it is that we are connected to a body, and that the reason we are important is because of the thing we are a part of. Individualism individualism says, how can I stand out from the rest? Paul says, "What what makes you important is what you're a part of. He compares significance to self-importance. Self-importance is something that none of us like to own. But I think like in Corinth, it's very prominent in our culture today. It finds value in being free from outside, outside control and not depending on another's authority. But unlike self-importance, kingdom significance finds security in God's control and authority. And if you were Paul, and if I was Paul, and you got this letter from the church, and it showed you the excess moral issues that were going on, it showed you how he was pushing, how the church was pushing into spiritual gifts that were visible because they were flashy, and you kind of like look at this, you're like, ooh, like this is so obvious, I can taste it, it's pride, right? It's kind of like a thing. You can see it. But Paul, I would have been like, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come in humility. I'm going to just demonstrate a good old-fashioned message of humility. But Paul doesn't do that. He came in, and he speaks on love. And I was thinking, like, why would that be? And then I was thinking, maybe it's because Paul was a Pharisee before he was a Christian. And if he had done a message on humility it would have been like taking a lawnmower over the weed and not actually dealing with the root. Because what they would have done is they would have taken that humility, they would have created a version of it called false humility, and they would have put it on like a spiritual cloak the same way they were doing with the spiritual gifts. Let's move on. Verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I love that word endure. It's like a military term. To hold the position at all cost. 
Love holds its position at all cost. And I think I'm so guilty in my life, and maybe you are, is associating love with an emotion. We know the feeling of falling in love. We know the excitement of it. We know what it is to love something or someone and to function out of that feeling of love. And yet Paul dictates to us in a very firm and forward way that love is actually not an emotion, it's an action. And he gives us 15 verbs to describe it. C.S. Lewis says this, Our culture has made love and kindness interchangeable. They are not the same. Love by its own nature demands the perfecting of the beloved. Kindness cares not whether its object becomes good or bad, provided only that it escapes suffering. The supreme ethic that God has given to each and every one of us is that of love. Love places the value on the other person. In a church that was self-obsessed and, and pride-based, like, focus on me, focus on me, love says, let's focus on others. <clears throat> we continue reading. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Listen to it in the message. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We know only a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be canceled. I love how Paul has approached this letter. In the culture of that day, there was a huge emphasis on intellectualism, knowledge, information, wisdom. And so Paul, in the beginning, says, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive words. Why? Paul could have easily done that. Paul could have gone in as the most gifted, most this. He's established the church. He's probably the second most transformational figure in the Christian faith outside of Christ. He could have gone in there and flexed his spiritual muscles, but instead, he went in there with gentleness and tenderness. And he said to them, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive words, but I came to you with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And the point is this. It's so that your, your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul laid aside his knowledge, his intellectual. He laid aside all the things that he could have persuaded people with. And he claimed to know nothing but Christ crucified. But he doesn't even come dogmatically at it. He comes in gently. And even with love, he says, let me show you a better way. Let me show you a better way. Not the only way, even though it kind of is the only way. He just says a better way. It reminds me of something that Mike said to us recently. He says, we have to live with blurred lines. When it comes to our own lives, we can have very strong definitives and we can be firmer and all these kind of things. But when it comes to the way of love, it's often with blurred lines. The way that we see others, the way that we pass judgment on others. We can't be so cut and dry with people because God wasn't that way with us. 
You know, I think about it with Jesus. Jesus chose Judas to be his disciple. He had an opportunity to choose 12 people to spend his last three years of his life with him. Out of anyone on the planet, he chose Judas. Even Judas wasn't disqualified from being found in the presence of Jesus. I think when we mature in love, we will see the gifts not as a destination, but simply as a tool to bring glory to God and love to others. So easy do we get in this place where we start pursuing God things without God motives. So easy. I think of a story, I wasn't planning to share, but this story of a friend of mine, and she was at a conference, and she was at the end of herself. And she said, God, I'm walking away from the church. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And from the stage, a man stands up and spells her name out. And it was a unique name. Spells her name out and says, who is that? And I think many people in that room must have stood there and thought, God, I want to operate in that. God, I want that. And you know what God is saying? I want her. Verse 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. We know how we think when we're children. We think about ourselves. We think about how can I serve myself? How can I get my way? How can I get the things I want? And I think the journey, the hodos, of mankind is the process of maturity where God takes sons and makes them fathers. He takes daughters and he makes them mothers. Not every person on the planet is called to be an earthly father and mother, but in the kingdom, every person is called on the journey of maturity to go from being a son or a daughter to becoming a father and a mother in the house. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Imagine Paul. A wealth of knowledge. Establisher of the early church, saying, we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. The Amplified says this, For now, in this time of imperfection, we see in a mirror dimly a blurred reflection, a riddle, an enigma. But then, when the time of perfection comes, we will see reality face to face. Now I know in part, just in fragments, but then I will know fully, just as I have been known by God. It's amazing to me that I can misunderstand God. Every day that I live, I feel like God just undoes something in me about my perspective of Him. 
I can even misunderstand myself, but what's beautiful to me is that God never, never misunderstands us. Ever. Verse 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The Amplified says this, and now there remains faith, abiding trust in God and his promises, hope, confident expectation of eternal salvation, and love, unselfish love for others, growing out of God's love for me. These three, the choicest graces, but the greatest of these is love. I think the prerequisite to giving love is actually receiving it. We love him because he first loved us. In Ephesians 3, Paul reiterates this with the church in Ephesus. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and may you, having been deeply rooted and securely grounded in love, be fully capable of comprehending with all the saints, God's people, the width and length and height and depth of his love, fully experiencing that amazing, endless love. And that you may come to know practically through personal experience the love of Christ which far surpasses mere knowledge without experience. That you may be filled up throughout your being to all the fullness of God so that you may have the richest experience of God's presence in your lives completely filled and flooded with God himself. You know what's scary about the gifts? Love is not a prerequisite. We can function in the gifts outside of love. That is scary. Because the gifts carry truth. Love is what makes them safe, though. We are called as Christians to speak the truth in love. And I think what makes that important is that truth is so sharp. Has anyone ever experienced when you speak truth to someone and it just cuts so deep? It's like the gospel. It's like what we read in Hebrews 4. It's like, for the word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to divide soul, spirit, joints, and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and intents of our heart. The word of God is sharp, and it doesn't just deal with the surface. It cuts to the heart, and it divides man's motives. And how do we get the word into people that way? By creating a safe place in love. If truth is a seed, love is like the water that softens the soil to make space for that seed. And Christ calls us in this passage to three things that we've just read. Three things that lead us towards the divine consummation of Christ's return. That we are to trust steadily in God. That we are to hope unswervingly. That we are to love extravagantly. And the best of all is is to love. World maturity is based on success and achievement. I did it my way, the song. Gospel maturity is about loving God and loving others. We did it his way. Think about this story of John G. Lake. Does anyone know who John G. Lake is? He was an amazing um, uh, man of God who worked in crazy miracles. He saw the most insane things, literally. 
uh, he saw hundreds of people who were diagnosed insane, set free. People raised from the dead. They prayed for a lady, like just stories upon stories. They prayed for a lady who had been undergoing operations because she had issues with internally, and they were actually removing organs from her body. Um, And what happened was they prayed for her, and she actually grew the organs back in her body. Like just the most insane stories. But he just speaks about, and, and they would host these healing rooms where you would go in, they would teach people how to believe in faith and pray for the sick and see the sick healed. And what they would do is they would actually send people uh, to go and live with sick people. Because for him, he said, we don't want people who are obsessed with healing the sick. We want, to, we want people who are obsessed with loving people and who, out of the overflow of loving people, heal the sick. Because when we love people, we don't treat healing like a notch on the belt. There's so many healing ministries out, it's just like a notch on the belt. We see this, we do that, look at all these, check that out. But actually, it's just an act of love. When Christ consumes our hearts, when he actually puts the love of God in our hearts so deeply, we don't see the gifts as a destination. We just go, that's a tool I can use to get love in someone else. That's something I can use now. And I'll tell you right now, the people that will flow in the gifts of the Spirit are the people that obsess with love. Because what happens is you go, I need something now for this person. I'm carrying this burden. I need it now. Not God, give me that gift. No. God, help me reach that person. What is it? What is the thing that's going to touch their heartbeat? Is it a word of prophecy? Is it, is it a literal healing? What is that thing that's going to breathe life into the situation? And ultimately, love comes down to serving others, doesn't it? Like, think about Jesus. When we think about pursuing the gifts of the Spirit, if we think about them as what we can get, we're always going to be trying to get something more powerful, bigger, more visible. We're always going to be going on this uphill escalator. Yeah, something like that. And we're always going to be chasing it bigger. But guess what happens? What is the last what is the, like, the last thing outside of Christ dying on the cross in his sovereignty, in his power, in knowing that he was the son of God just before his death? What does he do? Gets a basin, gets a towel, and he serves his disciples by washing their feet. That's the backwards approach to how we would maybe view success and maturity. And yet he did this not to exalt himself, but he proved That true humility is at the heart of love. We tend to put ourselves at the center of our world, but the gospel tells us something very different. It says in Ephesians 1, Christ is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all of this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. The church of Corinth got stuck in this issue of exalting one gift over another. 
And what's so sad about that is that when we exalt certain gifts over others, we are actually operating not out of love at all. Because love doesn't just accommodate. Love celebrates. And we as Christians are called to a position of love which celebrates every part of the body. And do you know what happens when a part of the body remains inactive? It dies. If we don't use it, we can lose it. And it might not be losing it in the sense that we no longer have that foot, but we can lose the mobility of that foot. We are called as Christians to love, embrace, and celebrate the gifts that God has put in each and every one of us. I just want to read a poem. And I'm done. This is my last thing. Yeah. I think Greg's going to come up. and Madge. Or, yes. This poem is written by a guy named... Jason Upton, and <clears throat> I'm going to read this because I found it so refreshing to hear this. It was almost like it's written by someone who's older, who's got to a place in their life where they're no longer pursuing the facades of success and glory and all these kind of things. And it's very simple. It says this, long live the journey and long live the children we raise. Long live the memories like leaves the years carried away. Just like a tree that slowly grows, the higher we reach, the deeper we go. We're living for something that'll be here when we're old. And we're headed for some place a little further down the road. Thank you. Redwoods and daisies never look worried to me. They take what's been given as if that's all they'll ever need. And if that's all they'll ever need, maybe that's all we really need. We're living for something that'll be here when we're old. And we're headed for someplace a little further down the road. Some people's reason for living is to get all they can and move on. But I find more grace in what's given. Because it leads me to where I belong. Elders are people who hold law and grace in their hands. Where death is a doorway and falling is just learning to stand. And less is more than we really need. And empty is a space for us to receive. We're living for something that'll be here when we're old. And we're headed for some place a little further down the road. That journey a little further down the road is like that Hodos journey. The way of love. It's not obsessing over milestones, achievements, it's just focusing on that next step of love. What is that next step? And Mike mentioned it last week, the kingdom is less about ability and more about availability. Less about gifting and more about loving. And when the pursuit of our lives flows out of the overflow of God's love for us, everything he puts in our hands will be a tool to glorify him and to serve others. The greatest in the kingdom is servant to all. Love seeks to serve.